This morning, um, we're going to start a new series. And uh, as we do that, is it not great that it's so sunny outside? I just, I just want to kind of name that. I was in Vancouver this week uh, with some pastors, uh, like the Vancouver, Canada, not Vancouver, Oregon. None of us in Indiana care about the difference, but um, there is a difference if you're on the West Coast. And, uh, and it was super rainy, and it was cold, and a friend of mine who lives in Southern California was like, why would anybody want to, I was telling them about the cold snap, the negative 40 thing that happened a few weeks ago, and um, he's like, why, why would you ever want to live in a place like Indiana? And so now I come back, and it's beautiful, and I'm like, ha-ha, we, ha, we, we got Vancouver for a day. We, we, we have nicer weather, and it's very beautiful, so I'm really thankful, and I'm proud to live in Indiana. I'm grateful to live uh, in this place, yeah, so for those of you who think it's so much better on the West Coast, but whatever, it, this, it's great here. It's great. The people are awesome. I was also humiliated we went to a vegan restaurant. I had no idea what to order, but that's a whole other (laughs) sermon. Um, This week, Wednesday, is Ash Wednesday in in the church calendar. And we will be at 7 a.m. here kicking off the season of Lent, which is a 40-day period that we set aside. It has been done for hundreds of years throughout church history, across different continents and cultures, to set aside time for fasting. Typically, the season of Lent was a season of fasting, um, and not like intermittent fasting, like, you know, like Christians, like there was a spiritual purpose to it, um, self-examination and repentance. It's a season of preparation for Easter and for the good news of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as we say that, um, it raises this question that, that kind of carries us into Lent, in this season is, why, why do we need to talk so much about sin? Why, why talk about sin? What, what is sin? Why talk about sin? Isn't it offensive? I mean, no, we don't, we don't live on the West Coast. We're here, and there is sort of a more residual impact of sin on the average person. Um, but it's a confusing concept, and it definitely can be an offensive concept. Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, said, certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine of original sin. And yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. We live, obviously, in a secular moment with more and more people disaffiliating themselves from the church who grew up in the church. And there's a lot of confusion. I've kind of seen the language of sin disappear from kind of like common, ordinary language. We don't talk about sin. We talk about addiction, we talk about, you know, we, things in kind of therapeutic terms, or we talk about things in kind of legal terms, or we use psychological terms. Not so much sin, especially with younger people. There was an interesting article that went viral in the New York Times, and if you saw it, if you're a parent, it was really fascinating. It was called Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. And it caught my attention because it was a woman who was raised in Indiana and now lives in San Francisco. I feel like that's kind of like the the, the arc, you know, it's uh, Indiana to San Francisco, and then back once you run out of money. Um, but she was talking about in this article, uh, she was in line with her daughter, who's like nine, at the, at the state fair. And there was a group of uh, what she calls temperance advocates uh, who walked by with these signs that said, Jen is sin. Okay, it's like, have you ever seen this? Jen is sin. And her daughter looks at her very innocently and says, Mom, what is sin? Here's what she had to say in the article. The notion of sin dominated my girlhood. Raised in Indiana by fundamentalist parents, 
Sin was the inflexible yardstick by which I was measured. Actions, words, even thoughts weren't safe from scrutiny. The list of sinful offenses seemed infinite. Listening to secular music, watching secular television, saying gosh or darn or geez, questioning authorities, envying a friend's rainbow array of Izod shirts. God was a megaphone bleeding in my head, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I had recurring nightmares of malevolent winds tornadoing through my bedroom, a metaphor I now realize for an invisible and vindictive God. And after years of living a secular life, I realized my notion of sin has now evolved. As a girl, my focus was on gaining and minutes to heaven. Now I believe that this life is the only life we'll know, this planet our only existence. I am no longer motivated by fear of an unproven hell, but by real-world concerns about injustice and inequality. I mean, how many of us have friends who would share a similar story? Now, the interesting thing is, she wants to hold on to Christian biblical concepts like injustice and inequality, which are borrowed from and actually rooted in a Christian ethic, the Christian scriptures, and a Christian imagination. You don't have human rights without a Christian imagination. But she wants to decontextualize that and repurpose it for a secular age. So it's kind of disappeared from our vernacular. And if we do talk about sin, we do kind of occasionally talk about sin, it's usually what um, Francis Spufford, uh, he writes for the Huffington Post. He's, he's kind of this unorthodox writer, if you've ever read any of his stuff. Um, but he, he calls this indulgence or enjoyable naughtiness. You know what I'm talking about? Um, there's a, like a, some examples. There's a brand management agency in Australia called Sin. Um, there's a fish restaurant in Lima, Peru called Los, I'm going to butcher this, but Los Pecadores Capitales a play on words for a similarity between fishing and sinning. Basically, a translation would be the seven deadly sins, something like that. Uh, Taxes on liquor and cigarettes are called sin taxes. Sinful, so here's like the category of like sinful pleasures. You talk about sinful pleasures, like something that's kind of dark and bad, but, but like oh so good kind of thing, like eating certain things or drinking certain things or smoking certain things or like truffles are like a sinful pleasure, you know? There are ice creams uh, with various iterations of the names of some sort of sin. Uh, Alcoholic drinks, even illicit relationships become these sort of indulgent, enjoyable naughtiness. He says, sin is the human propensity to muck things up. He uses some different language in the article. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here, including moods and promises and relationships that we care about, and our own well-being and other people's. It says it's inescapable. Now, the irony is that sin is this ongoing reality, but we don't have the categories to name it, to understand it in all of its comprehensiveness. And so we live in what some people have called outrage culture, right? We live with all kinds of shame and anxiety and alienation in our relationships and our institutions and our own souls. We live in a world where our imagination is captured daily by images from the media, right, of the realities of war. I grabbed uh, this next picture here from uh, the war in Ukraine. I had an opportunity in Vancouver to talk to a pastor who had just left the, uh, uh, Ukraine and was helping Ukrainians resettle and was planting churches. And we're just talking about the grim realities of war. We have a mental health crisis literally crushing the souls and the minds and the bodies of our young people. 
We have environmental chaos and earthquakes. We have poverty running rampant, opioid epidemics killing many people here in Indiana. The center of the opioid epidemic is like southern Indiana. A lot of people don't realize that per capita. We have the fracturing and polarization of relationships. We have racial injustice and violence, just to name a few. And our approach to thinking about sin, even in the church oftentimes, is a very superficial kind of thin understanding of sin, right? There's kind of competing narratives for what, what is sin? How do we define sin? And, and it's, it's kind of like statement, reaction to a statement, and then counter-reaction to the statement, right? The conservative kind of narrative around sin really comes down to personal responsibility, right? We are moral agents living under a divine law. We alone are personally responsible for all of our actions. Sin is a set of behaviors to be avoided so that when we sin, it essentially is lawlessness. It's kind of run through the lens of criminology. It's lawlessness and it's willful misbehavior deserving of punishment of which we are individually culpable only. The progressive narrative Um, kind of goes the other direction and says we're basically good people who happen to be deformed because of deforming or bad environments. Our family of origin, the institutions we're raised in, even the church, our wickedness essentially flows out of our woundedness. And we are mostly victims. And thus sin is not our fault, but is more like an illness or a condition. It is a sort of victimization narrative. And what we need in this paradigm is not salvation. We need therapy. We need empathy. We need education. Now, again, you can see in both of those paradigms bits and pieces of truth, but not the whole story. And we need to move beyond. The reason this conversation matters, and we want to spend the next couple of weeks kind of meditating on sin in a more comprehensive, robust, what we might call a depth view of sin, and then looking at redemption through that lens and the application of that to things like forgiveness and trauma and justice and other issues is that we as the church often don't even understand sin, right? And many of our neighbors just view the offer from the church when it comes to sin as a sort of punishment and a guilt paradigm, right? But it doesn't, it's not robust enough for the moment that we live in, not because the scripture is not robust enough, but because our understanding of the concepts are not. And so we need to move beyond this sort of binary of moralism on the one hand or victimization on the other, which is language that mostly comes from uh, the law, like the legal world, it comes from psychology, it comes from the medical industry, it comes from sociology. And again, all helpful il- insights, but not deep enough and comprehensive enough to bring about the kinds of solutions that the complexity of the human person, the complexity of our world demands. We need a deeper, I would argue, theological vocabulary if we're going to help our friends and neighbors confront and deal with their sin in the presence of Jesus. I love the way that Barbara Brown Taylor, an author, says it in her book, Speaking of Sin. She says, abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them, and that's how many of us feel, right? Just overwhelmed with the reality of brokenness, but without categories to understand how to get out of it and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace, since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. Sin, I love this line, sin is our only hope. The fire alarm that wakes us up to the possibility 
of true repentance. So I want to take that little line and and use that as the title of our message today. It's kind of like an intro to the intro to the series. Sin is our only hope, which sounds weird because we want to say Jesus is our only hope. But if we're going to get to Jesus, we have to get to sin. Or after we get to Jesus, we have to get to sin. But, But to get to Jesus, I think we have to get to sin and understand it so we know why we need Jesus in the first place. And so to start this story, I wanted to take us back to a place that I know many of you are like, are you kidding me, Genesis? We've done Genesis so many times. Yes, and we still don't understand it. So we're going to keep going back to Genesis because it's, it's the prototype. It's the place we learn about the story and the design of God's beautiful world and what went wrong and how to make it right again, right? It's a vision for the a world that God created, the way that it should be, the way it was designed to be, the way that it's not but a vision for how it can become what it was supposed to be once again. Before we get into Genesis 3, which we read this morning, I want to just remind us that the story of sin doesn't start in Genesis 3. The story of, of God and what he's doing in the world starts in Genesis 1 and 2. It starts the world that's created and characterized by God's shalom. Shalom is this rich Hebrew word that we often translate peace, but it's a, it's a rich, multifaceted concept that saturates the biblical story, the biblical imagination. Shalom is the way things ought to be, the way they were designed to be. It's a word that can be translated fulfillment or delight or wholeness or universal flourishing. One author says, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed. This is the vision of Genesis 1 and 2. We see a world in which there was shalom in our four core relationships, if you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We had shalom with God, a deep union with God, a a loving connection with God, a walking, a fellowship, an intimacy, and a, a relationship, not of fear, but of nakedness, the Bible says, without shame, right? A place of vulnerability and absolute communion with God. We were at peace with ourselves. There was shalom with ourselves. We had dignity as image bearers. There was a a wholeness and an integration within ourselves of mind and body and spirit. We lived out of this identity of being God's blessed, beloved ones. There was shalom with other people. We had interdependence and unity and diversity, and we could know one another fully and be known and love one another and be loved. There was safety and a lack of violence and a lack of want and poverty. There were strong families and institutions, right? This is the vision of of Genesis 1 and 2. And then finally, there's shalom with creation, right? There's, there's just a beautiful world, right? a, a world of economic flourishing, a world where there's enough housing for everyone, right? A, a world where there's the potential for development without exploitation, abundance without scarcity. This is the world of shalom. And it's hard for us to imagine that because we live in a world so far from that east of Eden. But I wanna just start there and name that. Because we cannot, we must not, we should not talk about sin without talking about shalom. We must never talk about sin without talking first about shalom. Because here's the reality about sin. However you define it, sin is a parasite. Sin is a cancerous infection. It is a, like a home invader who broke into God's good world in an effort to vandalize God's shalom and ruin and deface God's good world. But here's the key. Sin is not the essential 
feature. It is a bug, not a feature. Nor is it the final word in the story of creation and redemption. And when we forget this, and this is what happens with the kind of fundamentalism that this lady was talking about in this article, when we center sin in the story, we get all kinds of weird and harmful theologies. We get all kinds of weird and toxic anthropologies and sociologies and ideologies and isms. Because sin is not the main thing. Cornelius Plantinga, which if you want a great book just to read during Lent, I highly recommend his book, A Brevery of Sin. It's a great little treatment on kind of the depth and, and the width and the height of, of sin. It's a breathtaking book. But he, he, he talks about this idea of shalom and sin, and he says this, the biggest biblical idea about sin expressed in a riot of images and terms is that sin is an anomaly, an intruder, a notorious gatecrasher. Sin does not belong in God's world, but somehow it has gotten in. Sin is a parasite, an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities, not an organism, but a leech on organisms. Sin does not build shalom, it vandalizes it. Goodness, says C.S. Lewis, is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. And here's the reality. Science, evolutionary psychology, um, this like secularism has no categories for, for giving us a world that was good, truly. All we can see is brokenness. And so we become cynical in our brokenness. But there's this reality of shalom that we need to kind of keep just indexing ourselves back to as we think about how we talk about sin. And so now that we've framed sin within that larger story of shalom and creation and grace, now we can look at its distortion in Genesis chapter three. And I just wanna outline some threads. I wanna give us a depth perspective of sin, but I wanna just trace a few threads and I want to look at Genesis 3. We're not going to do like an in-depth on Genesis 3, but I want to take some of the contours of Genesis 3, some of these threads, and I want to pull them through to the rest of the biblical story. And I want to give us five kind of core truths about sin that I think will hope, I hope will serve as some correctives for some of us who've maybe grown up with a reductionistic view of sin, right? Or maybe just some good reminders for those who grew up in healthy churches where sin was put in its proper context, okay? So, Genesis 3 doesn't give us everything we could say about sin. It doesn't give us the full scope and the full story of sin. Actually, the word sin, interestingly enough, even though Augustine found, founded his doctrine of original sin in Genesis 3, it actually doesn't mention the word sin anywhere in Genesis chapter 3, interestingly. Uh, but it does describe the dynamics of sin through a narrative, right? Trying to capture our imagination, trying to help us locate ourselves in this story. And so the first time that something shows up in the Bible is always really important. It's kind of, kind of like the law of firsts. When something shows up, it's, it's establishing a sort of prototype or uh, a, a seed that then has a sort of trajectory that when it comes to full flowering, gives us the picture. And so I wanna kind of trace some of these seeds in, in large categories, and I want us to notice kind of the progression here in the story. And so first thing that we see in the story, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice this progression of sin begins with an attack 
on their trust in God. Sin is, at its core, just a simple definition of sin. I love it, and it's so simple. And this is kind of how the church has talked about it really for centuries. Sin, at its core, is a failure to love and to trust God. Sin is a failure to love. And it starts with a failure to love and to trust God, and it eventually becomes a failure to love and to trust others and even to love and to trust ourselves in the ways that we should. And, and, and what I love about Genesis 3 is it reminds us, because all the framing here in Genesis 1 through 3 is relational. We talk about sin in our secular moment because we have no category for God as the other. Sin is purely horizontal. We talk about sin in purely civil, legal terms. And we only think about it horizontally, which is a component, but we miss the vertical dimension of sin. What's happening here is that the serpent comes to Eve, and essentially the the root of sin starts with deception, with a distortion and a deception that's aimed at causing humanity to doubt God's goodness and his love. That's essentially what the temptation is. It's It's a deception about who God is. Two basic lies of the enemy that we see here in Genesis chapter three that are still the lies that he traffics in today. One is a lie that that seeks to distort our image of God. Sin always starts with questioning and sabotaging God's character. Is God really good? Like when you look at the brokenness in your life, is he really good? Can he really be trusted? Does he have your best interests at heart? And so the serpent, again, one of his primary tactics is to isolate Eve on her own. And in that isolation, begin to go at her relationship, her trust with God, and then she begins to, by herself, judge, analyze, try to discern who she is and who God is, but instead of with God, as we see in Genesis 1 through 2, she does it without God. And so the serpent twists God's words. He adds to God's words. He changes God's words. He gets her to focus not on the freedom of this beautiful world that God's created, but on the prohibition of the one small thing. I mean, if you're a parent, you know, it's like, you have all this freedom. I mean, my kids do not have a lot of rules. (laughs) Maybe it's because of my reacting to my upbringing. They do not have tons of rules. But even if I have one, it's just like, dad, why can't I do, this is the one thing I wanna do. What is that about us that we're just so obsessed and fixated on our limitations and our constraints and our prohibitions rather than looking at the freedom we were created to live in? They had communion with God the entire world to explore, to enjoy, to cultivate, to build a civilization. Are you kidding me? And you get focused on a tree and some fruit. So there's lies that are distorting their image of God. There's lies that are distorting their image of themselves. You can be like God, which again, the strange irony is, remember Genesis chapter one, they were already created in God's image. They were already like God. The serpent is planting this lie. He's saying, yeah, but isn't God holding out on you? Like, you're awesome. You're you're amazing. Look at how beautiful you are created with all this power. You were created not to be dependent on God, but to be autonomous, to transcend the limitations that this small-minded, narrow-minded, mean, cruel God has placed on you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't think highly of you. He doesn't want 
your best. You See how he's shaming them? You are not enough, is what he's essentially saying to them. So you need to transcend those limitations and become like God. If God won't take care of you, then you need to go out and take care of yourself. And man, she just takes that in, right? She takes that in. That, that deception from outside becomes self-deception. And it begins to reorient her desires, right? Because the most powerful deception is not what comes from the outside. The most powerful deception is self-deception. It's doing things and actually thinking they're the right things. Thinking bad is good and, and kind of reframing and re-narrating failure and evil as good and success. And that's what she starts to do, right? It's not so much that we tell lies as that we live lies with our very lives. And what I want you to see here in this section is just simply the fact that sin is first and foremost relational. It's theological. It's a failure to love and to trust God. Sin is more than just breaking a law. It is lawlessness, the Bible said, but it's a law given to us by a person in the context of a covenant relationship. All the framing here, it's not abstract. It's not like, here's this divine law, and you be a good moral Midwesterner, and you conform to this moral law. It's a relationship, a relationship based in love, based in trust. So it's more than breaking a law. It's the betrayal of a relationship that you were designed to experience with God. And that's why sin is not just rebellion against God, although it is rebellion against God, it's called idolatry and adultery in the Bible. It's like cheating on your lover. Because sin is ultimately about who will you love and who will you trust? Will you love God and trust him or will you love yourself and trust yourself or love and trust other people, other voices? Again, planting us says all sin has first and finally a Godward force. Let us say that sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its absence, so sin of commission or omission, that displeases God and deserves blame. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. In sum, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities, and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. And if you even look at kind of the lexical use of sin in the Bible, like the language, the linguistics of sin, this is, it's all relational. There's three primary Hebrew words and then some Greek words that are translations of that in a sense in the New Testament. There's three Hebrew words that are used for sin. Kata, which means to miss the mark. That's the primary sense in which sin is used. You'll see that, um, especially in the Pauline letters to miss the mark. What is the mark that we're missing? It's not just breaking a law. The mark, again, is shalom. It's loving union with God. So to miss the mark is to miss the loving relationship being offered to us by God. Peshah is another word. It means transgression or rebellion. Again, another relational word, a covenant that we would establish. And then when a person breaks that trust, they peshah that trust. They, they transgress that, they rebel against that. It's like, hey man, we had a relationship and you betrayed me. That's Pesha. And then Avon, Avon or Va is the last one. Iniquity can mean iniquity, bent or crookedness. 
It's, it's crooked behavior that leads to crooked consequences. This is the idea Augustine talks about with incurvitus say, if you've ever heard that Latin phrase. It's this kind of sense that we're bent in on ourselves, we're curved in on ourselves. This is the essence of sin. It's this temptation to be curved in on myself, away from God, in on myself, instead of outward and upward, inward, trusting myself, trying to play God instead of trust God, seeking freedom from God instead of freedom within the constraints that God has laid down for my good because he loves me. I love the way that Alan Mann um, talks about this. He calls this project self. I love that word for sin, that kind of phrase for sin, project self. He says, uh, if sin exists at all, we encounter it only when we fail to devote ourselves, he's talking about kind of our secular moment, uh, to the project of self-realization. Our pursuit of self-awareness, self-esteem, wholeness, and well-being is paramount. To be self-centered is a 21st century virtue, for no other can be trusted to bring the good life we crave. One who fails at project self, a failure defined by the individual's own ideas of success based upon cultural and social influences, must gaze into the mirror and confess to themselves, against you and you alone have I sinned. A brilliant little twist on Psalm 51, which we'll read at Ash Wednesday. So sin is a failure to love. Quickly, the second thing we see is that sin is a choice and a condition here in Genesis chapter three and in the biblical story. Yes, sin involves choices that we make. Eve chooses to take the fruit. She acts on a desire and, and it says she grabs, she takes hold of her own life, her own story, her, her own destiny and rebels against God. She makes a choice to sin. And so there is guilt that's involved in sin. But guilt and forgiveness is not the only paradigm for thinking about sin. It's the primary paradigm in the Western Christian version. We have what's called a forensic view of sin, right? Sin is breaking a law for which we deserve punishment and forgiveness is offered through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, very true, I believe that. I think it's a very important reality, right? It's, it's very important to our salvation. But it's not the only way that scripture talks about sin and redemption through, through the lens of just guilt and forgiveness. Scripture also talks about exile and return. It talks about slavery and freedom, bondage and freedom. It talks about shame and honor. It talks about abandonment and adoption. These are all like meta categories for thinking about sin and redemption. So I want you just to see, and I hope this isn't overwhelming, but I just want you to see there's so much complexity to how we think about sin. If you wanna kind of condense this down to a biblical theology of the basic categories of sin, let me just, just give them to you very simply. This comes from uh, a, a theologian, Gary Bashirs. There's sin done by us, which is how we typically think of sin, right? Sinful choices, intentional choices to act on your self-centeredness and to rebel against God. But then there's the sin done to us, right? Like our wounds, when people sin against us with their words, their thoughts, their actions, their exploitation, their selfish gratification that impacts you. And this is what we call wounds or trauma or losses or suffering or the limitations of our bodies. And then there's the sin done around us, 
right? Like our environment, our family of origin, the social structures and the institutions that harm us in all kinds of ways. I love the way the Greek Orthodox theologian Callistus Ware says it. The doctrine of original sin means that we are born into an environment where it is easy to do evil and hard to do good, easy to hurt others and hard to heal their wounds, easy to arouse men's suspicions, hard to win their trust. It means that we are, each of us, conditioned by the solidarity of the human race and its accumulated wrongdoing and wrong thinking and hence wrong being. And to this accumulation, we have ourselves added by our own deliberate acts of sin. The gulf grows wider and wider. Now, I gave you this paradigm because often, can you go back to that slide um, with, the, with the sin done to us, bias around us? Often we in the West focused on the top category almost exclusively to the exclusion of the others, the other two, right? We focus on, and we're gonna talk about this in the next couple weeks, the sins of the flesh, but we often don't talk about sin done to us, our wounds, our trauma, um, suffering. We don't talk about the sin done around us. Those two categories together form what Paul calls the world, right? The world in which we live, social sin. And, And then we're not even dropping down, which we'll do a whole message on this, to the categories of the powers and the principalities, which animate and metastasize and aggravate all three of these. And that's why Ephesians 2 just puts it so grimly, but so honestly, and I love Paul's just naming this reality. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You're trapped. You've missed the mark. According to, and here's the three, the ways of this world, the ruler of the power of the air, and our fleshly desires. That's what we'll talk about the next three weeks, one by one. I just want you to see that it's so much deeper than just our choices. We see here in Genesis 3 a malevolent, intelligent power tempting Eve, lying to Eve and her innocence and her naivete. This person personified in the serpent, deceiving, distorting, seeking to destroy her. And in Genesis 4, God warns Cain that sin is like this Croucher is literally like this croucher, this hungry wild beast seeking to devour him. So it's not just his individual choices. We make choices within a web of social environments and interconnected realities that influence and shape the choices that we make. It doesn't mean that we don't have culpability. It doesn't mean we don't have agency, but it does mean we are influenced and impacted by those things. And that's why the Bible says that we don't just sin. It says we are, Paul says we are in sin. It's not just a choice, it's a condition. The great theologian Fleming Rutledge in her massive tome on the crucifixion says, sin is not something we just commit. It's something we are in. Sin, theologically understood, is analogous to the unconscious impulses and drives that shape our personalities in harmful ways, making us perfectionists, procrastinators. I didn't even realize it was a sin. Uh, deceivers, I'm just kidding, Uh, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics, adulterers, and all the other manifestation that afflict the human species from sources beyond our control. We do not understand sin, capital sin, she's using the powers language here with the capitalization, in terms of specific discrete actions willfully committed. 
but as compulsions over which we have little or no control. This is not at all the same as excusing sin by calling it neurosis. What we want to emphasize is sin's power to enslave. And so she says, essentially, we are captive in sin and we are complicit in sin. Sin is bondage. Sin is a condition. Sin is a horrific disease. And that's why Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. His metaphor compares sin to a sort of terminal illness, a degenerative crisis, an addiction that we can't heal or break free from. It gets literally, sin gets habituated into our bodies, into our imagination, into our memories, into our brains, into our muscle memory. That's how deep it goes. And so do we need to be forgiven from sin? Yes, yes we do. But we also need to be liberated from the power of sin. And we need to be healed in our whole person by Jesus. Now, we we are running out of time, so I'm gonna just clip through these last uh, couple here. Sin is also internal and external which flows from what we were just kind of talking about. We see here that sin is about desire in the story of Genesis chapter three. Eve's desire for relationship with God, for safety, for comfort, for joy, for blessedness gets turned inward on herself and gets turned outward horizontally on creation instead of her creator. And now she's redefining good and evil according to her own desires. Sin is disordered desire. Again, we have to get beyond just sin as behaviors and actions that we do, and we get down to the core. It's, it really starts with disordered desires. There's roots to the fruit that we see as we think about sin. Historically, Christians have talked about the spiritual journey, and I'm talking like centuries ago, um, as a movement from bondage to freedom, and it's a movement from kind of inside out in a process they called purgation, This idea of purgation just is like a purification or a burning off of the sins that keep us from enjoying fullness of life with God. And they they had like four kind of layers for how they would talk about sin. The gross sins was kind of like layer one, like when you first become a disciple of Jesus, let's say you became a Christian as an adult, you have these big obvious sins that are not aligned with the way of Jesus, like, okay, if you're a murderer, stop murdering, you know? Like, if you're stealing, stop stealing. Like, the big obvious sins, the list of the flesh that Paul talks about with a lot of the external things. But then there's a layer beneath that, what they called conscious sins. And these are, like, when you, you kind of move on in your journey of following Jesus a few years, and you realize, oh, like, I have all of these things that I'm doing that I know are kind of culturally acceptable, and they're kind of wrong, but they're just kind of, like, normal. And so I, 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 it, they're conscious, because we know they're wrong, but we still kind of choose to do them anyways and go along with the spirit of the age. And I mean, like even the spirit of the age with the church. These would be things like just the celebration of sexual morality, right? The celebration of sex and watching sex scenes in gratuitous movies. Porn, gossip, dirty humor, sarcasm, materialism, consumerism, purchasing regularly unjustly made products and just calling that normal, dishonoring our parents and authorities, unforgiveness, leaving relationships when they don't make us happy anymore, right? These are just kind of like culturally acceptable ways of acting, but they're not aligned with the way of Jesus. Then you move down another layer, you're like, okay, that's bad enough, let's just stop right there. Now we go down to unconscious sins. 
These are like the hidden sins of omission, the shadow things that we can't see, the dark things that we, we cannot see. And they're more like these dysfunctional internal attitudes, habits, kind of like automatic responses. We do the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reason. Like, you ever had a moment where you're like serving the poor or you're serving in some meaningful way and you realize like, I am doing this for all the wrong reasons. Like, those are kind of like religious sins. Those are like, pastors are really good at those sins, hiding those sins. That, that's why this, the, the deadliest sins, the seven sins from the ancient church were things like envy and, and greed and sloth and, you know, those kinds of categories. Like, those are the things that really kill our souls. And we're not even aware of those. And then finally, they would talk about attachments. Attachments, this is like the good things that we've built, what one theologian calls trust structures around, or what another calls our emotional happiness programs, or another might call the idols of the heart. Things that keep us happy and safe, things that we look to. Good things created by God to be enjoyed in proper proportion with God and with our neighbors, but that ultimately we begin to attach a sort of God-like quality to them, and we look to them to keep us happy and safe. We look to them for self-protection instead of looking to God, right? Like it's been said, why, why do I need to trust God when, I, when I've, just, I've got the money to take care of it myself? It, it's things like wealth. It's things like health, safety, family, your marriage, a good thing but not an ultimate thing, your work, success, comfort. All of these can be attachments, emotional happiness programs that we've got to root out if we're gonna move from bondage to freedom because it's desire that then leads to action. Fourthly, it's individual and it's communal. And again, we'll talk more about this later. We tend to think of sin only in individualistic terms. This is one of the primary things that I've had to teach over and over again here at SOMA that we just don't have categories for is like social sin and structural sin because we've so associated that with like a progressive agenda, but it's actually, read the prophets, like read the Old Testament. It's all over the Bible, right? It's like this, this foul folder that's been ripped out of our kind of like theology in the Midwest that we're trying to reinstall that's not part of a political agenda or ideology, but is there from the very beginning. Eve shares the fruit with Adam, right? It's a communal act that they commit together with communal implications that get passed down over multiple generations to their children. One of the primary root sins you see if you trace through the families of Genesis is the sin of deceit. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the family line to the third and fourth generation. It metastasizes from Eve to Adam and Eve to the families and the communities and the nations of the Old Testament. That's why they'll say this person walked in the way of uh, some great, great ancestor or the sins of this nation, right? There's national sins. There's community sins, right? Family systems theory is just like picking up on something the Bible's been talking about for <laughs> centuries. And so we need to see those categories. And then finally, we see the consequences of sin. And we'll close, close here and move to like, okay, what do we do with this? The consequences of sin are shame and guilt and death right? You see them as they sin against God. The eyes of both of them were open. We go from naked and not ashamed to now a realization of nakedness, a realization of their vulnerability before God, a realization now of their, their sinfulness. So there's a realization of guilt. They sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. But there's also a deeper shame that's attached to their sense of self, 
Not only did we do wrong things, now we live with this dis-ease, this shame of not only do I do wrong things, I am wrong. I am fundamentally broken. And it leads to alienation. And all the core relationships, next slide, all the core relationships that we were designed to experience love and trust and joy, now we have alienation. We're alienated from God. We're cut off from communion with God. Our relationship with God is damaged. We, we run from God. We hide from him instead of running to him, the safest person in the human being, the one who create, in the world who created us for relationship. We run away from him. We, we try to cover ourselves with fig leaves and, and cover our sin, and we create all these false identities and ways of trying to make ourselves okay. We're alienated from ourselves. We live in shame, and we live these narratives that are self-destructive. We're alienated from other people. We harm one another. We're alienated from creation itself. The ground is cursed in Genesis chapter 3, and we live in this cursed world with a cursed earth that's groaning, Romans says, for redemption. Now, to sum all that up, here's just my summary to end this sermon. It's not good. Like, is that, do you feel that heaviness? I want you to kind of feel that heaviness. We're all about, like, some levity and lightness here at SOMA. We, we try to take things that are complex, make them simple. We try to take things that maybe feel, like, heavy and, and weird in the church and make them, like, you know, kind of, we try to translate them and, and make it feel, like, light oftentimes. This is just heavy. And it should be. Sin's heavy. Two weeks ago, I sat in hospice care, holding the hand of a person dying of a significant brain injury. And I just thought, it's, this is heavy. This is not the way it should be. When you don't have the words, you know this is the way the world's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. And, and it's worse than we imagine, right? When you hear all these categories, I want you just to get a sense for it. It's worse than you think it is. What you think is happening inside of you, what you think is happening around you, it's worse than you can imagine or even like to admit to yourself because we have a human propensity not only to muck it up but to cover it up and to minimize and to live in denial. It's a coping mechanism. It's what allows us to get out of bed in the morning. But the reality of the Bible when it comes to sin is we cannot save ourselves. We need to be rescued. We're dead, Paul says, in trespasses and sins. Paul cries out, who can deliver us from this body of death? Who can deliver us from this world that's plagued with war and famine and poverty and all these things happening outside of us, but also inside of us, shame, guilt, envy, jealousy, self-hatred, like all, fear, all these things that live inside of us. We need to be delivered, he says. I love again the way that Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. It's easier and less painful for us to rely on God's forgiveness of our sins than it is to believe that God might support us to quit them. That's what we want. We want freedom from our sins. Sin is our only hope, she says, because the recognition that something is wrong and being to name that something that's wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken, and there is no hope of transformation for a world whose inhabitants accept that it is sadly but irreversibly wrecked. And how we diagnose that reality will determine the treatment that we bring to it, right? If, if our greatest need is economic, God sends us an economist to help us figure that out. 
If our greatest need is entertainment, God sends us a comedian or an artist. If our greatest need is political stability, he sends us a politician, God help us all. If our greatest need is health, he would have sent us a doctor. But, D.A. Carson says, he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. And this is the beautiful promise of deliverance from sin here in Genesis chapter three. The Lord God calls out to them. He goes after them in their sin and shame, and he asks them this beautiful question, where are you? And again, it's not like God went out for like a, a turkey club and he came back and he's like, what happened? Like he knew. He, he's trying to help them admit and see their sin and cry out for help. He's inviting them back into that relationship. Where are you? Come back home. And he makes this promise that one day he's gonna send a Messiah who's gonna heal the world. He's gonna make it all right. And he makes clothing from the skins of animals, this kind of foreshadowing of atonement. And he covers them, he clothes them. God performs the first kind of fashion show here in Genesis chapter three. And Jesus becomes for us everything that we can't be for ourselves. Where Adam fails in his disobedience regarding the tree, Jesus goes and he hangs on a tree and he becomes our redemption. He becomes our salvation. He succeeds where Adam fails. And that's why there's this beautiful declaration on Good Friday that Christ died for our sins, everything I just described that is so awful, so miserable, so horrible, so terrible, and so true. Jesus came to make it right, to die in our place for our sins, to become. Do you understand now the significance of when it says Jesus became sin for us? How radical that is, how comprehensive that is, how deep that is, and how jacked up that is that God became sin for us? As bad as sin is, as stubborn as sin is, as pervasive as sin is, in our imagination, the scope of Jesus's redemption is wider, it's bigger, it's more stubborn, more pervasive, and it is the final word for those who are in Christ, not in sin. And so I just wanna invite us as we close and we go to communion here together, just I wanna invite us into a practice that has marked Christians for centuries that I hope will not feel offensive. Like, I know this is very offensive, and I know many of you do this with us every week, but maybe you haven't thought about how kind of offensive it is. It's actually really offensive. But I hope this just feels sort of like hygiene for Christians. You know, like you get up hopefully in the morning and you brush your teeth, I think. You go to bed at night, maybe floss a little bit, and you brush your teeth for the sake of your, if you're living with somebody, your partner, your spouse, your children. You take a shower, maybe at least once a week. I know we're in broader world. It's just the practice of confession, right? Confession and repentance. Repentance starts with confession. You agree with God. Literally, the word means to agree with God about your sin, to name your sin, not just generally, but honestly and specifically. Specific sin needs specific naming and confession. And then you commit to repairing that. That's the basics of repentance. Confession of your sin, turning away from trusting in yourself, recognizing that your primary sin is against God, you failed to love God, but also there are sins against your neighbor that also need to be confessed. Paul says, do not come to the table if you're unwilling to forgive, if you're not living reconciled with your neighbor, don't come and take communion. That's how big of a deal sin is to Paul and it is to God. Because God has forgiven us, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive me my trespasses and sins as I forgive the trespasses and sins of others. Man, we're gonna do a whole message on forgiveness here in a few weeks but it's just the practice of confession. 
James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Right? So we had this opportunity this week, right now, to just confess our sins to God, to take a look at ourselves and hold up the mirror of truth to our own souls and lives. Maybe even this week to do that corporately. Confession was not something that was supposed to be just done individually with us and God. It's actually a communal practice where you invite others to help you see things. Because when you get down to the layer of unconscious sins and attachments, let's be honest, most of us can't see those ourselves. Now, the funny thing is, everyone else around us sees them, but because we're so defensive, they are not charitable and generous in offering that feedback to us. And so, Maybe in your missional community this week, maybe in your family this week, if you dare and you feel safe enough, you invite others into that space with you and you say, would you help me see some things about myself that I cannot see? Confess your sins so that you can find freedom. Not so you can beat each other over the head and find some weird virtue in like sin bashing, right? We do that in the church, like kind of throw your $5 in the jar. That's weird. We're talking about nudging ourselves towards becoming people of love and trust. God and with each other. And so we practice confession. We confess our sins to God. We confess our need for Jesus. We cry out and we ask for forgiveness. We ask for the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and to help us change as we move out into the world. So let's just take some moments to do that here. I wanna pray for us. And I wanna just invite us into a space of radical honesty before God in the presence of a community where you are loved, hopefully, and you feel known to invite you to surrender yourself to God who created you, who loves you, who sent Jesus to this earth to die in your place for your sins and to rise from the dead and to offer you new life, right? A new life that will continue on into eternity, that will eventually cascade into the kingdom of God coming to this world and us living in the beauty of shalom once again, but shalom that's been redeemed, a world that's been healed and transformed in Jesus' name. And that's what we want for ourselves. And so I want to invite you just to take a moment to confess your sins as we go to communion here. I'll pray for us, and then I'll give you some instructions here after I pray on communion. Father, we thank you for this good news. <laughs> and it is good news that we can just freely admit our sin. We can come in this place. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to perform. We can just open ourselves to your loving presence. We can confess our sins, and we can find healing. We can find forgiveness. We can find a deep, whole life reorientation, mind, body, soul, and spirit, where we are reoriented into becoming people who love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love each other, and are learning to do that imperfectly, yet aspiring and pointing ourselves towards the kingdom that is coming for us. And so God, give us a freedom right now, just to admit, a freedom to cry tears over our sin, a freedom to lament, not just the darkness out in the world that's depersonalized and decontextualized, but to look inside first and say, woe is me before I say, woe is you. And just to acknowledge that, man, the seeds of that live in me. And so God, just help us to, to cry, help us to cry out, help us to, to laugh and to rejoice in forgiveness and freedom and hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's do that together as a community. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.